Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and today I was joined by James Doman Pipe, the Senior Product Marketing Manager at Remote. In this episode, James shared some of his best and worst stories of trying to differentiate in the market when launching a product, the lessons he learned from these experiences, and what it takes to actually stand out in a crowded market full of competitors. With that all said, let's get into today's episode. All right, today I am joined by James Doman Pipe, the Senior Product Marketing Manager at Remote. James, thanks for joining me. Hey, Adam, how's it going? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. James has graciously decided to spend this time on a Friday. Was it 5.30 p.m. your time on Friday right now? Yep, it is. To Almost record a podcast there. with me. So, <laughs> I mean, there's. I actually asked him. He said, there's nothing I'd rather do than record a podcast on Friday evening. Yeah, that's it. That's verbatim what I said. <laughs> but the reason I brought James onto the um, the show today is because I came across his uh, his newsletter, Building Momentum. And on myself and our actually director of marketing over at Clue, we've been following it ever since, just sending each other some of the articles you've written, some of the different pieces. And honestly, it's a must-read. There's a lot of product marketers probably listening in to this episode. So if you are a product marketer, or even if you're interested in that world at all, go go follow Building Momentum. James, you're writing... What do you do? Is it once? Is it once a week you're, you're publishing this? Uh, so I do a post on a Tuesday, and then I do something called the overview on a Friday. Uh, the post will look into you know product marketing, positioning, messaging stuff, um, and then the overview will just be a roundup, basically, of interesting stuff that I've seen on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or stuff from my um, swipe file that I've been building for the last ten years or so. So lots of juicy stuff. Awesome. And yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to send, uh, I'll share that in the show notes of the episode and uh, make sure that everyone can find it that's listening in here. Let's let's kick off with the newsletter, actually. James, like, what was the inspiration for this? Why, why'd you start building out this newsletter? Uh, it's a good question. So I actually, about five or six years ago, got told by my boss that the best way to, you know, build a personal brand is just to write stuff. Um, and I was like, okay, yeah, sure. But during that time, I've needed all of this stuff to help me. Um, I've been looking for stuff online to help me go through the same kind of challenges that I'm writing about now. Um, you know, how do you take a product from zero to one? How do you build positioning for the first time as a first time marketer? How do you, as a founder, um, think about your sales process and start to map that to, um, you know, the, the collateral that you need? How do you think about competitors? How do you start to... Uh, understand who you compete against and how you message to that there are so many bits and pieces that um you know people need on that journey whether you're going from you know in product marketing founders and sales early stage b2b startups um and i just decided to start writing um i actually started my Substack, i think in november or october last year and it took me until february this year to actually put out a post uh, but now I've been doing it since February religiously. Um, and yeah, it's done so much. Um, but you know, what makes it really good is that, you know, just like your kind words as well, I get loads of people saying that it's really helped them solve challenges and, um, you know, just learn more about what product marketing is and how to do it. So it's really nice to see that giving back to the community as well and helping other people on that journey. 
For sure. And just like in my brief time, kind of talking with a lot of product marketers is that idea of community, I think is like, people are like crying out for that. I know that the PMA product marketing lines do a really good job of it, but just in terms of just sharing personal experiences and it's very applicable and a lot of product marketers are kind of can be like that lone wolf in their organization. They've got like eight different things to do at once and it could be pretty daunting. So yeah, I just personally love the content. Um, that's why I brought you on and yeah, everyone should, should check it out. In terms of how this episode will go, we've actually spent a lot of time in previous episodes kind of diving into like the nuts and bolts of how you'd build com your competitive program, uh, the world of competitive intelligence. But today, I actually just wanted to ask James about some of some of the articles you've written on this like competitive differentiation, competitive messaging and strategy. And so the first kind of article I was looking at was um, what's your competitive differentiator? And it's a, it's a funny one internally, especially from a messaging perspective, sometimes internally, actually, we were having a session amongst our marketing team two days ago is that internally. It seems so obvious, like how you're different, how your product or your solution is just so much different than everyone else because you're right in the weeds of it too, right? You're, you're so in that world that it just makes sense to you, but externally it's from that bird's eye view. It can, uh, it can be really hard to actually separate you from your, your main competitors. So where have you seen people fall short in terms of truly explaining how they're different to the buyer? Uh, yeah, I've seen it a lot. Uh, and it's exactly what you described. It's people that are really close to the product and not necessarily in tune with what customers are thinking about. Um, I think that one of the traps people fall into is that people will think, about how are we different through the lens of their product and the business, the features they've got, stuff like that. But the question they should be asking is, you know, how are you different through the eyes of your customer instead of the buyer? And in most situations, your product's probably not going to be super, super different. You're probably going to have, you know, a couple of key differentiated features, but you're probably targeting that same core group of customers as somebody else. And that means you're going to have to work much harder to try and win them as a customer. Uh, I think the next trap that I see a lot is people stop declaring, the, they, they, they kind of go as far to declare the benefits their product delivers. Uh, things like, you know, how we save you time. Um, our platform is effortless. You can do more with less. You can save money. And that's cool, but it's not necessarily great. Um, people can still achieve those outcomes with like a ton of different solutions. And that might be competing products. It might be people. It might be, you know, other solutions. And those benefits aren't really going to galvanize your prospects. They're not really going to speed up that sales cycle, get them super excited to buy. You're, you're kind of comparing apples to apples. You know, do you want a red one? Do you want a green one? Um, and I think in those kind of situations, you really have to go much further than those benefits. And you've got to talk about the real value that someone's going to gain when they use your product. And, you know, I think we're going to talk about value and what that actually means. But, you know, those two common traps, um, I see in a lot of the early stage B2B tech companies that I work with, again, just being too close to the product and not necessarily in tune with customers in the market. I was, well, that actually kind of leads me into that next question is sort of in your career, either teams you worked for when you were helping other teams as well, 
do you, do you have any examples of where you just were struggling to stick out? And you mentioned that in the early stage. Um, what did that look like for an early stage? It's just like really struggling to find where they can separate themselves from other, other products in the market. Yeah. So I've got an example that, um, I mean, you'll see as I talk about it, but it was where we were struggling to stand out to a customer, to the particular customer we wanted to win. Uh, we were really struggling to resonate with them. Um, so I was at Kayako. I was hired there as the first product marketer, which is a customer service SaaS company. We had a big plans to reinvent the world of customer service. Um, really strong vision to take it away from a, a revenue, to take it away from a cost center and instead position customer service as a revenue generator. Um, we were building a whole new product from scratch, really determined to fix those scenarios that we've all experienced um you know when you're in touch with a company and you know they pass you on from team to team you have to repeat yourself all the time you're given a ticket number and then the customer service rep just forgets there's an actual human behind the ticket uh you know those sort of experiences where you're not treated as a, an individual so we planned our launch in advance and we followed all of the best practices that you would do to launch a product, to launch messaging and positioning. So we did interviews, we developed messages, we tested it with our audience and so on. Uh, we launched feeling pretty good about it, super confident that we'd done all the groundwork and we're really looking forward to just seeing everything, you know, go up and to the right, basically. And we'd landed on this really interesting messaging that spoke to the aspirations of leaders in our target companies. So it was all about this new world of customer experience, super visionary, super excited about it. And so when we, we launched, we pressed, you know, go on the platform and everything just completely flopped. It was awful. Um, we'd gone from adding thousands of revenue a day in our previous products, the one we'd sunsetted, uh, to adding zero in this new one. So two years of work down the drain, basically, a, a total failure at launch, really bad. We created a war room, um, obviously, because that wasn't good. We couldn't sustain that. Started investigating what was happening. And we found that um, in the, the interviews and research that we were doing, we found that the messaging we developed just completely wasn't resonating, resonating at all, really putting people off. So that meant they didn't start a trial. They didn't request demos. They didn't buy from us. So we looked into it a bit more and started to analyze, well, actually, who was that customer that we're seeing on the website and in the sales process? And who are the ones that we'd actually messaged to and found they were completely different? So we'd messaged to those leaders and executives who cared about all this aspirational value. Mm -hmm. But the people coming to the website, the people that were discovering the product, taking it forward, championing it, just weren't bothered at all. You know, to them, our messaging, our website just looked like, you know, meaningless marketing waffle. There was no substance to it. it. It didn't mean anything at all. They wanted messaging that was much more tangible, you know, stuff that would speak to the pains, the problems they are experiencing. Um, they wanted a bit of that long-term direction, but ultimately they just wanted to solve today's pains, get those over and done with. Um, so we just hadn't linked 
that real clear hierarchy from, you know, the features and the product that we had built, the benefits that we were delivering through those and the value. And we hadn't figured out that hierarchy or how to measure that effectively. So it's, yeah. So you mentioned that it almost kind of, it almost felt like you like skipped a bit. You went to like the leaders, the leadership to sell this like vision. Whereas the people boots on the ground that will be actually dealing with the product on a day-to-day basis. Like, okay, how you like, I like what you said there. How do you, how do you solve today's pain? That's what yeah. I care about. I obviously it's good to have your buyer also think about the long-term vision and put that seed that into them. Cause like that's important as well to establish, establish yourself as like a partnership, but yeah, also addressing their short-term pains. So what was the light bulb moment? How did you discover that? You mentioned the war room. Um, yeah, how, how did you kind of come across this? Or, and what was like the biggest lesson you've learned from, from the flop that you mentioned there? Yeah, so uh, we were in this war room. Um, we basically literally cleared out a corner of the office, all sat around desk, just like <clears throat> dashboards up, uh, trying to pull together everything we had. And it was only in the interviews we were running that we found our issues. So we were doing win-loss interviews anyway. You know, if anyone's not doing them, set them up. I've got a blog post on how to write that, how to set that up. Um, But they're super, super valuable for just keeping tabs on people coming through your pipeline. What happened? Why didn't they come with you? Um, So yeah, win-loss interviews, customer interviews. We literally spoke to, you know, probably a couple of hundred people in about a month or two. Um, just trying to find out, you know, every lead, why didn't you, why didn't you choose to, to, to go with us? Um, and it was in those conversations that we were like, actually, yeah, like we're not speaking to the right people. You know, the people on the website, the people that are coming through the pipeline are, you know, manager titles. They're not the executives. They're not the directors, that kind of stuff. Um, and it was a really quite humbling experience to have put so much energy into, you know, the process and feeling confident about it, only for it to be completely dashed at the last minute. And, you know, the biggest lesson I've learned is, you know, I don't, whenever I do positioning now, the immediate next step is to work out what that buyer journey looks like. So mapping out all of those stakeholders that might be involved in that buying journey and then figuring out where do you message the different levels along that journey. Um, Super, super important. Mm -hmm. I I feel bad that I've brought you on the podcast and immediately been like, okay, where did you screw up first? So, (laughs) you know what? Honestly, I do. I I actually do enjoy that kind of like the, the biggest lesson you've learned from something that hasn't been as successful. Honestly, you get so many, like you mentioned there, like the lessons and the learnings has probably kind of put you in good stead moving forward and actually in contrast let's let's get to some successful moments then as well i know you wrote about your time at head start too and how well your team was able to differentiate in the market in in that scenario so why why was that one successful and like kind of what what did you do to improve upon maybe something that didn't work in the, in the other scenario you mentioned yeah and it's a really interesting kind of dichotomy because at kayako I was trying to learn everything as we were doing it. So I was going onto Google, I was talking to people and trying to figure out how to make these things happen. At Head Start, I was able to put all of those lessons I've learned into practice. Uh, and that was a really nice experience, you know, comparatively so. Um, so for context, Head, Starts is, Head Start is a diversity recruiting platform for campus recruiting teams. So uh, 
you know, big enterprises um, selling, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in software to big enterprise, 5,000 plus employee companies. And our champions at those companies, um, we deemed as uh, socially conscious, radical buyers. So these were people that didn't, you know, just care about the immediate benefits of solving those immediate problems, but they had a much longer term strategic outlook on the overall value of our product and where it would take them as a business. Um, and we found that out through research, again, getting on the phone with people, interviewing, trying to find out, you know, what they care about, what's going on in their lives. And we messaged actually three different kind of frames of value in that process. So firstly was the business value. You know, these people needed their businesses to be seen as innovators, uh, to show that they were taking big public steps around diversity and inclusion in their market against their competitors. Um, it was a big driver for their clients to be seen to be working with, again, socially conscious companies. The next frame was that kind of professional value. So these people were quite savvy. You know, they recognized that introducing those new initiatives would really help their professional standing. It would help them get the new promotion. It would solve their team's problems. They'd be responsible for those improved results. It would help them stand out in the job market. They could talk to something that had helped them, um, you know, improve the representation of their intakes and stuff like that. Really strong. And then lastly, we spoke to this kind of personal value. Um, you know, these people were, like I said, socially conscious. They knew that diversity inclusion is the right thing to do. They cared about all of these diversity issues. They'd experienced it and they really wanted to do, you know, the right thing, make a real difference in the world. And so we were able to kind of merge all of these bits together with, um, you know, a rational and a logical narrative or what I call kind of a heart and brain narrative. So, you know, the rational brain recognizes the cost savings, the ROI, the cold, hard business impact. And then you've got this emotional heart story that, you know, is all about the social impact and wanting to do good in the world. Um, and meshing both of those together was really successful from a positioning perspective and for the business results and our sales cycles and everything like that. It, yeah, I, when, I, when I hear that immediately as well, when you contrast that to the other situation not only you like in the first scenario you said you weren't even you felt like you weren't actually talking to the right buyers yeah. but also like what you mentioned that rational side like cold hard facts is good but it also will only get you so far like I, i'm curious as well in terms of tapping into that emotional side like how do you kind of come up with that that's you're actually speaking their language i suppose yeah uh it is that understanding um, if you think about it, you know, the literal definition of positioning is, you know, to occupy a space in your customer's mind. And you're not going to do that effectively unless you know what else is in there. So that's not stuff that's just related to your product or the problem area that you're trying to solve. You know, what are their professional post personal goals? What do they believe in? What do they care about? Uh, how, you know, in this case, we found that these people were, were in this role because they wanted to make a difference to, um, you know, early talent. They wanted to give every, every graduate the best opportunities 
to um, improve their social standing. And that was you know, one of the big levers for us that we were able to, to, to latch onto relatively early on in that process and see that nobody else was talking about that in the market. Everyone else was talking about the business impact. Nobody was connecting that back to what can I as an individual do to enact change? And if you think about this through the lens of 2020 with um, you know, all of the, the race, uh, racial equity protests around the world, you know, it was super, super timely. And so much of that opportunity was, uh, you know, really heightened in the mind of the people that we were talking to. Yeah, it's especially when you mentioned the alternative options or your competitors are hammering that business value. Essentially, what you're saying is like just managing to tie in that emotional aspect and actually just like understand what motivates them, what their goals are, what they value. It was your differentiator in that scenario. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, uh, as we'll talk about coming up, I think, um, you know, value is something that's a priority for somebody. You know, it's something that they are motivated that to search, switch or buy for. Um, something they need to solve. There is a driving need behind that. Um, that might be something that comes from in the business. It might be a completely external factor, but there has to be that motivation in there. And if you can find that something that's really altruistic, something that is about, you know, also, you know, take HubSpot, for example, with their inbound marketing narrative. Of course, ads aren't good. They're expensive, right? But who wants to be pushing ads on people? You as a marketer would much rather people come to you. And that's, you know, why I think that that inbound narrative works so nicely is because it talks about, what a marketer can do to improve and enjoy and be happier at the way they're doing marketing in a way. We, this is kind of the other part we, we've mentioned here. We're going to start to talk about value and it kind of bleeds into all of the conversation. Right. And, and, and you mentioned there to start with, I was going to ask like what even is value, but I, as you were answering, answering that, I kind of, I want to know, how do you figure out what a buyer deems valuable to them? And yeah, what are some of the tactics that you would use to, to figure that out? Yeah, so I think first let's talk about what value is. So a value is an element that your customer wants to gain. So it has to be useful to them. It's got to be worth the effort. And so that might be worth the money, worth their time, worth the energy. And it's got to be a priority for them. Ideally that value that uh, your customer is going to gain is going to meet all three of those tests. Um, and the way that I've found best discover them starts with super, super broad customer development persona research. Um, I think it's kind of disheartening to see how many companies, you know, will talk to customers to sell them or support them, but won't necessarily talk to them just for learning opportunities, just to, you know, find out what's going on in life with them. So I think a lot more people could do, could do that. So I, I'm, so let's, let's get into that too, then learning from the customer, because I think, as you mentioned there, sort of in the initial things stages, like you actually need to understand what makes the biotech you've talked about that maybe the relationship that companies have with customers isn't always in pursuit of understand, like learning from them where they're kind of the source, they are your buyer. They can tell you how to reach more of them. And so with that being said, what are, 
two of the uh, when you're when you're trying to learn from a customer what are two or three of the most important or valuable questions that you ask a customer to to un, like to learn from them yeah so uh, i've got a blog post that lists out 19 different questions so picking two is quite difficult for me uh, i think they're all super super valuable um but if i absolutely had to pick there would be um you know, the first would probably be asking customers how they've attempted to solve their problems so far. And the reason I love that is because you can then start to dig into, a, you know, how did they solve it or how did they try to? Why did it fail? What worked for them? What worked? Uh, you know, what didn't work? Why did they like it? Why didn't they like it? Um, and you'll find out so much juicy stuff in that. You'll start to understand, you know, what competitors they've used the processes they've trialed and failed at when you use it in sales conversations. So, you know, in a discovery call, for example, you also learn where the gaps were in that experience for you to block up and seal the deal almost really, really valuable. Um, I think my second question would be what's changed in the last five years that makes, you know, our product so much more valuable. And that's really nice for discovering, you know, this world change. If you listen to or read the Andy Ruskin's um, uh, narrative um, medium posts, um, but it's really useful discovering all of these different trends that are on people's minds, um, changes in their world that you, you might not have thought about at all. It provides a ton of insight into future opportunities for direction, for product, for marketing, for sales. And you can also follow up with, you know, what's going to change in the next five years. So you're going to get ahead of the game. You're going to be able to ask, you know, from their current pains, their current context, the problems they've got right now, what is going to affect that that's going to prevent them or maybe help them to be more successful. And you can work all of that into your plans as well. Where, where does the competitors fit into this as well? So when you're, I'm not, I, I think you mentioned there as well, like just talking to the buyer, some of the questions you could understand like alternative options they've used, but you, you get this information, you're really trying to understand the buyer, but how do you bake that into also understanding what the rest of the market is doing? Like, is there like, I'm not sure if that's completely a coherent thought there, but like when you're understanding the buyer, but then you also have the rest of the market you mentioned in your Head Start case, how you just like had an understanding that, the rest of the market are just gone business value. Let's tap into the emotional side. Like, how do you even kind of monitor those two things at once? That's a really good question. Um, my kind of philosophy, I guess, for want of a better word, is that the dominant partner in the in you know the market equation is the demand side, is the customer. And if we can accurately understand, you know, the market, which is a group of similar people that have similar pain points or problems that they're willing to solve, uh, to pay to solve for, then that is much more stronger and almost a shortcut. Again, in context of early stage B2B companies, especially, you know, that is a, a shortcut to momentum, basically. I think competitors come really into their own when um, you have that positioning and you're looking for opportunities you know, what are the unmet needs, the unmet values that your customers just aren't served for? They're not served by in the market. Um, again, where are the gaps? If you've, um, you know, you can look into, there's a really good blog post 
on, I think, the Harvard Business Review about blue ocean strategy. You know, what are you, what could you do that your competitors aren't doing? How do you flip that on its head? Um, and if you've got that and it's backed up and evidenced by your customers, what you've learned from them and what's going on for them, that puts you in a really good position. It's almost, yeah, it's almost like a feedback loop of reinforcing once you've really identified where that pain point is and you're serving it. Let's let's get into one one other thing in terms of value before before we move on. You've also written about this value nugget strategy. Um, can can you explain that a little bit? And do you, do you have a good example of like where where you've used this value nugget? Yeah. So this is something I started playing around with when I was at Caraco, basically in that horror story of a failed product launch. Um, you know, we needed a way to, to link the features we had to benefits to the value that people were trying to gain from us. Um, and a, so a value nugget is basically a way to package those, those bits up, uh, provide a really clear hierarchy as well, so that you can use it in sales conversations or in marketing material, you know, it makes a really good layout for a web page, for example. And it's comprised of those three, uh, well, four bits in total, including proof points. But, you know, firstly, a value. Uh, so that's the element, attribute, or state that a buyer hopes to attain. And a value is made up of one or more benefits. And that is the advantage that a buyer gets when using your product. So it's something that's tangible. There you can report on it, for example, usually, or it starts with a verb. And so an example might be, you know, save time, increase customer satisfaction, increase win rates, that kind of stuff. Those benefits are gained by one or more features. Um, so, you know, again, you're able to see this kind of hierarchy of a value is delivered by a benefit, which is delivered by a feature. And so that might be, a, you know, a specific piece of product functionality. It might be something less obvious, like an integration or a report, or it might be something that's, you know, you wouldn't think of at all, like, a, you know, modern, clean UX, a design consideration, or, you know, even service support, dedicated account managers, um, service features. And in that post, um, you can find one of the ways that I really like about it and is really helpful um, to me anyway, is being able to move up and down that value nugget um, by asking why on the journey up and then how on the journey down. And this is good, I think, because it forces me to think about um, making it easy to navigate, but also ensuring that there's real tight alignment between the features you've got and the value you say that you're going to deliver. And so it's really, really key to building that cohesive narrative and make sure that you're not just selling your product, but then you can work backwards and start to build what you sell to as well. Um, so I used it at Kayako. I've used it everywhere since then. So it's, it's kind of battle tested, uh, at least in you know, my companies and the couple I've worked with. Um, but I did a blog post um, talking about Xerox and a story from, I think it's the Challenger customer book. Um, if you've not read it, it's where Xerox went from selling printers to uh, K-12 school districts, previously based just on their functionality. So printing color, that kind of stuff. 
to selling instead on how those printers led to increased student performance. And so that's quite a jump to say, you know, our printers are going to help you deliver better school results, increase student performance. But uh, it's a really good story of using that research, discovering these kind of unmet needs, being creative with messaging, and then, you know, ultimately all holds up in this value nugget framework. Um, and so the example, if I just pull it up and take a look at it while I've got it, but, uh, you know, one of their features is the ability to print full color workbooks. And so if we're going to use the, the why on the way up, you know, why is that useful? That's because it's proven to encourage higher student performance. Okay, so that's great. And why is that important? Because it provides the best possible educational experience while managing budget pressures. And so then we can ask how on the way back down on one of the other benefits that is supporting that value. So the budget piece, how does it help support budget pressures? Because those educators can incorporate color without adding costs. And how? Because they have an on-demand print feature. And so when it's laid out, you can go and find that on Build Momentum, but um, you can see this transition really nicely all the way from those features to benefits, to value, and all the way back down again nicely packaged up and what I like about it as well is that it's easy to train that narrative with sales teams for example um, you know I found people pick it up really easily especially you can give them little cue cards for that kind of stuff um, and also for consistency once you've got this real tight defined narrative that you're using you get everybody talking the same consistent talk track and I think that's always a good thing consistency for sure across teams and what I like about that, that kind of framework is, as you mentioned, first of all, it is a framework. And it's a really, even as you're laying out there, it's very simple to the point. And it's like a lot, it leads you down a logical path too. It almost answers each question as you go, which makes sense then when you've got, when you've built out this value nugget and you're going to share it to the sales team, how they're going to talk on a call, share with the marketing team and to have that alignment because it is so step by step by step, you've talked about hierarchy a couple of times. It almost feels like that, that um, people can latch onto it quickly. And that's, that's actually one of like the, the more I've talked to product marketers too, is that hidden skill is being able to really like simplify a message, but yep. without simplify, but still maintain a value and make sure that people can understand that and convey pretty much conveying a message yeah. as simply as possible. Yeah, I agree. And you know, one of the, 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 the secret skills I think product marketers have is our ability to think about second and third order impacts. So it's not, again, you know, you might have a feature. The first order is the benefit. Second order impact is that, that overall value. And that's what makes product marketers really good at being able to navigate those levels. And if we can help other people do the same thing with a tight framework, it's all good. So let's get into one of your last articles here. And so obviously uh, the, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about competitive, competitive enablement, competitive intelligence. So one of your articles was your biggest competitor is not who you think it is. And so a lot of my podcasts, we've talked about how do you wrap your head around those ma major competitors? Or I think I, last week's episode, we had someone who's in the sales and sales enablement space. It's blown up. How do you track all of these competitors? But with your article here, you, you've talked about all of the other competitors that you might be missing out on or not noticing. And you call them the, like the top of funnel competitors where 
yep, you've got your two to three that your, your salespeople are talking about seeing on deal by deal basis, but what are the ones that you're not seeing? So what do these lesser known competitors look like? So I think in some situations, it's helpful to think less about the terminology of competitors and more about you know, alternative solutions. It's broader. It gets us thinking about, it gets us thinking away from, you know, the companies we deal with, we compete with day to day and gets us instead thinking about the solutions that people might be using to achieve those similar kind of outcomes. So again, some of them will be those direct competitors. That's obvious. You know them, you're familiar with them, you compete with them in most deals. You probably might also find these kind of super niche solutions that might be set up just for one type of customer or one really specific use case. I find that most companies will have them on their radar and individually, they are not a big threat. But when you look at them as a kind of lumped group, you know, a single chunk on your market pie chart, that group is probably going to be bigger than you think. Uh, and I think most people should think about that a bit more. Interesting. So like you're almost saying there's like so many little fragmented um, alternative solutions that sure, when you see them one-off, one-off basis, like we all have those ones. You're like, oh, there's a buyer that that one may, you can, like you said, an alternative solution or competitor that you see one or two times, maybe a year. But when you lump all of those together, you're like, they're actually taking like a bit decent chunk of the pie. Well, I guess my, my question then is, how, because again, as a product marketer, you've only got X amount of time. How do you, like, how would you tackle that? If there's all of these different alternative solutions, how do you tackle that in terms of like positioning against these so many different, like small alternative solutions? You also don't want to put all your time towards it because like you said, these are all separate scenarios and there might be one to two cases a year. Like how do you ta yeah, tackle them? It is tricky because of the volume of that. Um, again, this is why I found, again, caveating early stage B2B is that by focusing on the customer that you are best set up to win now or in the near term is a shortcut to that kind of stuff. So rather than focus on potentially all of them, all of the potential competitors for your for a big market, you're much more focused Um in who your customer is and that helps you build momentum through that um, i think it's also really interesting if you think not just about kind of the software solutions as well that I compete with so there are tons of other um, you know people powered but also other solutions that a company might have already that you're also kind of competing with that you just wouldn't think um, you know homegrown solutions for example, you know, there's always a developer that thinks they can build whatever they need in a week. Uh, there are going to be some businesses that have, you know, take Jira, for example, really big, heavy feature set. A marketing team might want to use Asana, but they're probably not going to get approval for that at all. If you've got um, a recruiting team wanting to use Green Day in a company that's paying for the Workday HRIS platform, probably not going to happen. So you're competing against this kind of, um, you know, software already in-house, already these kind of existing vendors. Then you've got all the people side. So freelancers, consultants, agencies, 
you know, actual people power, employees who can solve the same problem just through, you know, data entry, for example, or, you know, customer support, assigning tickets, for example, in customer service. There are software solutions that can automatically uh, assign conversations to the right people, depending on all these factors. Most companies will just have one person or two people assigning tickets to individuals instead, just because it's A, easier, it's probably more expensive in the long run, but they just don't know, you know, that another thing exists out there to solve that. And so when we kind of position against these non-software competitors, we get an opportunity to be much more creative. The process is still the same, you know, understand what unmet value that customer wants to have. And then the actual execution, you can get away from differentiating against products because it's not another product that you're competing against. It's A, trying to make sure that this person knows that you exist, that you can solve their problems. So you're not trying to eke out the slightest elements of feature differentiation. And instead, you've got this huge canvas to explore. And there's so much opportunity within that to really speak again to that core value that your customers really hoping to want to need to attain in their day-to-day. Funny, I was listening to the senior product marketer, Claire Smith at Slack. And I've heard it a couple of times. There's like this Slack ethos, which is competitor aware, customer obsessed. And I feel like that's sort of what you're talking about here. Hey, that's a really nice way to put it. It's, um, yeah, that's really, really nice. Isn't it succinct? I like that. I was like, oh, as soon as it's one of those ones where you're sitting in a webinar or listening to an interview, like, quick, write that one down, write that one down. Yeah, I love that. Um, and it's exactly right. You know, obsess about why your customer needs or wants or will benefit from your product. Make sure you're aware of the competitors in the market, how you're going to message against them. I think competitive enablement goes hand in hand with objection handling as well. So that's another big thing that, you know, most product marketers, most sales teams, I think will do a disservice to the full solution of, you know, the full breadth that you can go in objection handling. Um, But yeah, I love that phrase. Those are some of my main hard-hitting questions. I'm sure that our listeners, like this, this was awesome. This was really, really awesome. It's a little bit unique to what we've done, but I think there's a ton, ton of value. And I'm sure I'm, listeners, Give us your questions. What else do you want James to answer? Because I think if you listen to this episode, he's got a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience. I love the actual tangible examples. That's just my, the bane of my existence is when people talk theoretically. <laughs> and yep. so you had some awesome, even shared your flops, which is, which was, was awesome. So yeah, listeners, let us know what else we want to talk about. I'm going to be bugging James to kind of join us more, more often. He doesn't know that yet, but you all put pressure on him. Maybe we can make that happen. He can spend his Friday nights with us more often. So James, I really appreciate your time. No worries. Thanks Adam. Um, Yeah. Really interesting. And thanks for the conversation. For sure. All right. We'll see everyone next week. Cheers.